that's the kind of moment we're in. I mean, I know it feels bleak, but this moment we're in is actually for someone who has, you know, uh, had his whole adult life during this Reagan neoliberal period, right? Right. Uh, this is a profound moment of possible transformation and opportunity. Welcome to the Death Panel, an official production of Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. Support the show <laughs> at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Today, Phil and I are here with a fantastic guest. We have Michael Lightley, who is the healthcare constituency director for the Sanders Wait, do campaign. We, do we... Did I say Lightley? Oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah, so Mike... let's, let's, let's do that again. <laughs> that only, no, no, no. That happens nine out of ten times. You know, I to be honest, <laughs> I was laughing because I was looking, I was watching videos of you speaking because I like to get an idea of like the meter of our guest speeches. And if they're already recorded, I like do that. And I was laughing at how many times your name was misspelled on YouTube. And then I went and did it myself. <laughs> so let me try that again. <laughs> <laughs> Phil and I are here today with our ex esteemed guest, Michael Lighty, Healthcare Constituency Director for the Sanders Campaign. Michael, you've also worked with the DSA Medicare for All campaign, but you've been doing this thing for about 25 years um, and are a veteran of the NNU California Nurses Association and also... Uh, were, were you a port commander or director, a commissioner at yeah. some point, too? <laughs> I Wait, was. what? I was, a, I was. I was a commissioner on the board of the uh, Port of Oakland. That's so cool. Oh, that's awesome. What a, what a resume, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, that was intense. That was during Occupy, actually. When we port. shut down the port? Yeah. That's yep, fantastic. Yep. I was there. I was working for... Oh, yeah, well, there you go. See, I was working for NNU and on the port. And wow. so that was uh, an interesting moment for me personally, <laughs> as well as politically. So one of the things that we were talking about off mic is um, our, our audience is pretty read up on, on Medicare for All. They're pretty hungry for single payer. And one of the things that really frustrates them is the sort of like idea that um, Medicare for All or the fight for single payer is this new movement that either sprung wholesale out of the ACA um, and therefore must tack towards a public option or um, that Bernie Sanders just invented it out of thin air in 2016. <laughs> and you are like living proof positive that both of those are horribly incorrect. And I was wondering if we could kind of get started with maybe like some of your favorite stories over the years or sort of how you got into this type of like organizing for single payer 25 years ago, not, um, you know, when it was invented in 2016. Yeah. I was going to say 25 years. <laughs> this is so new. Oh, yeah. It's even, it's actually even a bit longer because, um, I was the director, the national director of democratic socialists of America in 1991 when Harris Wolford got elected to the U S Senate in a special election on the platform of universal health care. Wow. And that's really what began the Hillary care period. And what was striking about that period was that um, 
that was the moment when uh, we went from a kind of general uh, consensus among unions and liberals and kind of the democratic uh, political milieu for what we, we called then national health insurance, what we call now single payer Medicare for all. And, and that occurred in 1992 when the AFL-CIO adopted a position, 93 really, sorry, when the AFL-CIO adopted a position in support of Hillary Care instead of demanding single payer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that transformation really has led us through this incremental period since then. That it is true that obviously the 2016 presidential campaign uh, substantially, you know, you know, lifted up Medicare for all and kind of reversed that. But really, Beatrice, Phil, this goes back to uh, World War II mm-hmm. when employers gave workers health benefits instead of. Uh, wage increases because, of course, the prohibition on raises during the war economy applied. And that set us on this path of private health insurance, employer-based, instead of national health insurance, universal health care that all comparable countries adopted um, after World War II. So it is. It's a long fight. Uh, Sometimes I'm not proud of it being a long fight, but it gives you a sense of what we're up against, right? Right. And um, And really, so you have to understand Medicare in the mid-60s as part of this fight. We we demanded Mm -hmm. universal Medicare. We got Medicare for seniors and Medicaid for low-income people. Thank you, Uh, by the way. Yes, (laughs) right, exactly. And that was a lot. It is literally a lifesaver. But it was intended to obviously uh, cover those who didn't have employer insurance. And then we continued this fight in the 70s. We were on the verge of it with uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ted Kennedy. uh, obviously, it was a fight even during the Nixon administration. That's when health maintenance organizations first uh, mm. cropped up mm. and dreaded HMOs, right? <laughs> and then the 90s fight uh, uh, with um, over Hillary Care. So we were not able to get single payer on the table during the uh, Affordable Care Act fight, but we were able to... Um, you know, make some mischief and have some fun in, in 09 and 10 as well. <laughs> but we're obviously in a much different position. And I think it reflects the movement. I think it reflects the nurses' uh, fight uh, and persistence. And I think it reflects uh, the Physicians for National Health Program and and labor activists um, that have gotten us here. And now what's remarkable uh, is the involvement of young people, particularly you know, through Democratic Socialists of America and others, because that this movement got very gray mm-hmm. over the last few decades, and yeah. now it has been revitalized, I think, by a surge of smart, militant um, pressure campaigns uh, led by younger folks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to to think about how the fight for single payer kind of happened at the same time as private insurance. They kind of always have existed together. Um, Right, right. One of the things that I think is hard for people to grasp is like just how many times this has been attempted and then sort of truncated by small band-aids and fixes that have like diverted energy away. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, we I were think talking that, about Hillary Care briefly. Um, yes, exactly. So the Hillary Care example is about how the labor movement went from a position mandating social insurance as really mm-hmm. that's what single payer Medicare for all is, of course, social insurance instead of private insurance, and uh, adopted this really a more kind of a you would say neoliberal frame, right? A mix mm-hmm. of public and private, and then. Um, 
What's interesting, of course, in the, in the mid '60s when we did Medicare, was that the the uh, pivot uh, was having to do with what could get through Congress dominated by Dixiecrats. Mm. So right. in the early 90s, it was labor at the fulcrum. In the mid-60s, it was essentially racist Democrats who controlled <laughs> Congress in the fulcrum, right? And that meant that we couldn't get universal Medicare in large part because poor black folks in their states were not somebody they wanted to cover. So Medicaid right. as a state federal program let them off the hook. And a half dozen states didn't adopt the Medicaid initially. And guess what? Those are the same states that didn't ad- expand Medicaid of under course. the Affordable Care Act. Right. Which right? is like the so, one most popular thing about the ACA. Exactly. The, really, the really best thing about it, three-fifths of the coverage expansion came from, from Medicaid. So that these 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 continuities in history don't go away, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whether it be race or the the you know role of unions. Um, and we're fighting the same fights. The the Nixon administration. Uh, pushing health maintenance organizations, HMOs, what are those? Those are just closed networks of providers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What are we having now with surprise medical bills? You go right. outside of your closed network of providers. So what I think the lesson, really going back to, to that pivot point in World War II, is that just as you say, incrementalism doesn't work. Right. We have literally tried everything except what's popular and actually solves the problem, which is Medicare for all, because <laughs> we've tried all these incremental things. So a 10-year transition plan where we slowly prove to people that they really want it <laughs> is not the best idea? Wait a minute. <laughs> not the best idea, no. But I mean, like, I, I think my, my question, though, is, you know, and this is this is a broad question, is when, I, when you hear the history of this uh, single-payer, national health insurance, whatever, going back, like, it includes all of these people who like by historical lights are by no means like radical. Like when I think about the fact that Jimmy Carter, this is part of his presidential (laughs) platform, right? Yeah, that's right. And and like when I go back and think about the history of the democratic party, I think about Jimmy Carter as being sort of like the end of, you know, Mm. any kind of like left bent in like the democratic party at all. And so like, why, I, I guess like two, two questions, like one, why, were figures like Jimmy Carter uh, attracted to uh, this kind of proposal? And I guess the second question is like, why do you think this history and this idea that like this is a, a pretty broad, uh, a program with like pretty broad political uh, support, why do you think by the time that we get to like 2009, this is something that's like somehow been eclipsed or made invisible? Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it, it's a very, it's, it's a pretty straightforward, I think, historical explanation that Elizabeth Rosenthal, who is now an editor at um, Kaiser Family Foundation Health News, um, wrote about. And it is the transformation that happened in 1980, uh, starting in 1980, and it, it coincides with the election of Ronald Reagan. And that transformation is really from a nonprofit caregiving healthcare system rooted in, um, you know, some, you know, doctor-patient relationships, community hospitals, and nonprofit insurance companies, uh, beginning in 1980, transformed into a healthcare industry mm-hmm. dominated by for-profit corporations, right? And that, at the same time, Reagan gets elected and says, government's the problem and taxes are the issue. Mm-hmm. And you can see those themes then play out. And it is essentially uh, Carter at the time really um, 
ran as a, an economic populist, as a, as a kind of, you know, not really even as a liberal necessarily, more as an economic populist. And that that tendency um, was very consistent with a more working class base in the Democratic Party. Uh, social issue voting and other trade agreements and the other de economic devastations had not eroded that working class support. But you take those combination of factors, uh, the deindustrialization of the 70s and then Carter adopting a more deregulatory, uh, almost neoliberal program, Reagan's election, which is explicitly you know, anti-government, uh, and then the industry itself becoming so powerful and right. so profitable. That's then they're they're basically by 2009, Phil. They're ba they got three members, uh, three lobbyists for every member of Congress. They've got <laughs> literally Jeez. tens of billions in profits uh, every year. Uh, corporate hospitals have bought up community hospitals, so they don't exist. So that consolidation, and you look at the Democratic donor base. They, they embarked during this period as well on an explicit strategy, particularly after Clinton, of mm -hmm. raising corporate money, right, to fund their essentially centrist campaigns. And they're dependent hugely on the healthcare sector uh, as a part of that donor network. So I think all those factors come together. Wow. I mean, it's like, you know, all this stuff, but sometimes it's painful to rehear it all in order like that. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Yeah. We know all this stuff, right? But right. then you tie it to healthcare and it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Right. Well, and I think that's why, um, you know, the nurses union has always been so interesting because you even have these uh, uh, provider advocacy groups like, well, I don't even know if I would say that the AMA is that even. <laughs> but, you know, the AMA from the very beginning has been fighting against single payer. And I think it's fantastic now that even they can't um, you know, produce a vote by their members that doesn't show majority support by providers anymore. So, exactly. you know, you've done all this work over the years working with the nurses union. I'm sure that um, part of their support for this really comes out of the day to day experience of their jobs and the fact that they um, nurses, I feel like almost exist as this other structure above all healthcare. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they're the ones that are yeah. are doing the really hard work and who sort of bend the rules to save people's lives and get people <laughs> what they need. But it's also funny because they're also involved on the insurance side where they never see patients and their job is to just, you know, gatekeep and deny care. Um, I can't imagine that the job you know, satisfaction of nurses is super high under a for-profit healthcare system. Would that be correct? No, that would be correct. That would be correct. And I think what you're talking about really is that nurses embody the values of a caregiving system. Totally. Not of the of the healthcare industry. Right. And so they're at odds in like that fundamental sense, right? That, the, that they're literally their whole being is at odds with 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 the industry model. So I think the morality of caregiving that they bring to their work is what we need to bring to healthcare reform as the basis for a new system. And I think that's very much what Senator Sanders uh, is about too when he talks about um, ending this broken and and you know expensive dysfunctional healthcare system. That's really uh, it's nurses and doctors who would be in charge, and the, the whole rap that it's government run is false in that sense. So when you bring back the morality of caregiving, you can create mm -hmm. a single standard of quality of care for all. That it's uh, and it's 
delivered in the most appropriate setting based upon medical necessity determined by doctors and nurses, right? You don't have the bureaucrats looking over your shoulder. And, and it is true, the morale now suffers. And one of the things that Medicare for All promises for nurses beyond just, I think, a reorientation of the healthcare system based on their own values of, of mm-hmm. compassion and caregiving is the ability to, say, improve staffing. We can limit the number of patients each nurse takes care of in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. And that and that is their fundamental problem. Uh, it's all budget-driven. Right. Just as you say, Beatrice, we can uh, eliminate that gatekeeping role that nurses don't want to play. That's not what they were educated mm-hmm. to do. And they can get back into care, into, into caregiving. So uh, it is, I think it's profound, the leadership that, that registered nurses have provided. And I think it is, is organic to who they are mm-hmm. and how they want to... Um, uh, be as nurses. I'm curious when you say, when you say caregiving or caring system, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I mean, I understand the nurse's role, but I think you're talking about something. It sounds like you're talking about something far broader, uh, than, than that, right? Yes. Uh, what I'm really talking about is, uh, rooted in the, in a, in a sense of solidarity, right. in a sense that we're all, uh, of a kind, we're humankind, and kindness has to be the basis for any healing or any healthcare system. And that really does, I think, represent an alternative ethos of solidarity that we've seen in other countries. That obviously most societies are not as individualistic as as the United States, mm-hmm. but even those societies that are, say, in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which is of that. Uh, culture more than perhaps others. Canada, for example, the United Kingdom, through their healthcare systems, they have created a sense of solidarity that cannot be undone even by conservative, you know, politicians. And that mm-hmm. and a healthcare system can function in a way to create that kind of alternative ethos. Because so much, I think, Phil, of of these politics around healthcare are the politics of resentment. Someone right. else got a better deal than me. Yeah. Oh, you don't deserve health care, right? Healthcare, Hell yes. right? Yeah. So, right, right? Yeah. And so healthcare is a human right's got to mean, hey, we're all human. And that dignity uh, is ours. And the freedom comes from being healthy. And that is kind of fundamental. So I think we can talk about these values and we can talk about a healthcare system and create one that embodies them that has profound political implications. I think a lot about the way that my employer has like undermined that by doing now this, uh, you know, inducing you to like wear the, wear the Fitbit and everything. But like the whole, oh, yeah. the well, whole that's like, thing is that like, <laughs> well, the, the, there's like, well, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the, the, the reverse. It's what happens when you yep. don't have a solidaristic system because it says, look, there are people in our risk pool that are sick and like, they're the one costing you the money. Right. Exactly. And that we need to somehow like exactly. discipline them. And, and force them to behave correctly so that you don't have to pay as much. It's really sick. It's really sick. So actually, I think that like talking about the relationship that nurses have and their sort of approach to undermining even the most strictly restrictive uh, hospital conglomerates is like a really great analogy for sort of how we move forward. Because I think one of the things that like, I hear all the time or I get asked all the time is, well, you know, one, how are we going to make everyone care about everyone else? Um, (laughs) Which is possibly more annoying than the how do you pay for it question. And um, well, how do we fundamentally just sort of change everyone's idea of their experience of healthcare? 
And like as a frequent user of the for-profit healthcare system, you know, you do meet nurses that go above and beyond for patients, for their fellow nurses. Like the sense of solidarity is unbelievable. And uh, the things that they can do to like make small tweaks and, and make things get through, like they shouldn't have to be doing that stuff either. Um, I think it's, you know, uh, Artie's mom is a nurse and she's always talked about, uh, she did a lot of, uh, dialysis and how, you know, just like people in management sort of look at the dialysis nurses, like you're just, you know, like, come on, do it faster. Like each patient is a check. Like, what are you doing? Like spending all this time in care, doing your job. Um, and it's like dialysis is not a, not a non-serious procedure. You know what I mean? I think you're really right, Beatrice. That that is really literally when we say embody the values, they literally act them out. They they enact the quality at the bedside every day. Right. And that's profound, you know, and and the system needs to do that instead, but it's always going to rely upon individuals, right? And you're right, that's right. kind of a uh, a model, right? Um, right, exactly. For how we persevere. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think it's also that what we should, what we should emphasize is that it is collective, right? Right. It's individual acts of kindness, caregiving, but it is um, both a kind of orientation to the work and also most effective when it it exists in a unionized environment, certainly, Mm -hmm. but there is a collective sense of what nursing is, what nurses do, who nurses are. Right. And I, uh, that I, I noticed and that, you cannot, un- you, you have to, I think, um, understand this as a collective activity and expression, right? Right. So it's almost like the structure exists. We just need to empower the leaders to like expand it, basically. The leaders of that yes. structure. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Because what structures, in, what structure now empowers who, right? The private right. insurance yeah. structure empowers the administrators and the deniers, right? The bureaucrats. And we empower caregivers, doctors, nurses, other providers. It is, it's fundamental. And that's why they want to taint it. Oh, it's government run. It's lack of choice. It's all this other crap. When, it, right. when really, and as you say, uh, well, people, people, oh, how can we induce caregiving? Well, you know, listen to your nurse. Mm-hmm. How how can we create people caring about each other? Well, because the system cares for them. See, people may not believe health, that everyone else deserves health care, but they believe they deserve health care. <laughs> yeah. <Right? laughs> well, it also seems to me that for, for such a long time that like this big argument against, you know, well, it's the AMA's classic argument against like creeping socialism, which for them was like anything from Medicaid to like mosquito <laughs> abatement or whatever. But like the, the, the old argument is just that like government comes in and then, you know, government doesn't let you do your job. But mm-hmm. it certainly seems that like the, the profit making system actually acts as a huge constraint on the ability of practicing medical professionals from doing their job. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's think of this. United Health made twelve billion dollars last year. Wow. <laughs> so if you're taking one company taking twelve billion, we say, you know, in the Sanders campaign, Senator Sanders says a healthcare industry made over 100 billion in profits in 2018. The number from Axios is 170 billion. Wow. That is, so yeah, it's way over a hundred billion. Right. Uh, and so when you're taking, so you're right. One, the health economist, William Shaw estimated that if the healthcare industry spent 1% of its revenues to fight Medicare for all, it would have billions. Um, you're seeing or already- Or just to hire new nurses. Yeah. 
More nurses. Yep. More nurses. How many nurses you could hire? Think of that. They've spent half a billion already, uh, the partnership. I call them the partnership to protect future healthcare profits. I love it. But yeah, that's a better... It's an acronym that's as hard to remember as the one that they came up with, which is That's great. exactly right. But it's, you know. yeah, but I, I do think that all that money, but what people have to realize, we always got to remember that we paid for everything. Right. Right. The pharma ads, those profits. It's a failed business model. They depend on tax subsidies, denials of care. Mm-hmm. Right. So in other words, don't use our product and we'll make money. <laughs> right. Right. And, and um, then the, the, you know, crony capitalism of, uh, of the financing system. Right? Oh, and what, you know, what patients are left with is GoFundMe, pleading right. for charity care, financial aid applications, um, Medicaid, which is being frequently gutted, dismantled and mains tested. And, um, you know, like just sort of begging the drug company to give it to you for free if you happen to have like one of three maybe conditions that they're agreeing to cover care for. Um, usually because those yeah. conditions have large disease-based advocacy organizations behind them. Um, <laughs> I was going to say large patient advocacy organizations that the drug companies fund. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of, I have an orphan disease, and one of the things that I'm really tired of repeating to people whenever um, I, I share like uh, a healthcare situation is, no, I can't just um, go to uh, the maker of Rituxin and beg for my medicine because there are like 12 of me. And they don't mm-hmm. care about providing free medicine to someone that doesn't have like the organizational structure to publicly call them out in a way that would make any sense. You know, I'd have to sit there right. and explain to people what my disease was and what the medicine did. There's no collective understanding, but like that's where we're left. If you don't have a, a big C cancer or if you don't have uh, one of these diseases that has like an extra state structure in order to like fix the problems that... Um, we're paying for exactly. in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, I think that, that I think that really sums it up. Is that you've got a, a patchwork mm-hmm. of uh, almost random efforts to fill the gaps mm-hmm. in in the in the industry model because the industry model inherently creates gaps, right? Where profit right. can't Shoots be and made, ladders, right? Yeah, and those gaps. Uh, are filled by the public sector or not at all, um, or and now in our case, right, through um, crowdsourced personal fundraising campaigns. Right. But, right, and that, and that used to be charity or whatever, and, and it just doesn't work, and mm-hmm. it can't work. See, that's kind of the problem, right? You can't reform <laughs> right. the system because structurally it can't work to guarantee healthcare to everybody without barriers to care because it can't be an industry mm-hmm. and do that, right? I mean, do you, uh, I was mentioning some of my least favorite uh, talking points. Do you have a uh, one that drives you the most crazy? Because I'm sure <laughs> you come up against and, and work on formulating responses to these talking points. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, no, my, my thing is whenever you hear the words choice, competition, and innovation, mm-hmm. grab your wallet. <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's, just, that's just rhetoric to rip you off. And I really, really hate it. I mean, of those, I mean, they're all the same kind of, right? right. It's just they're like, all the same the point knowing, at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just escalating some notion of the invisible hand, free market, right, to the uh, to be the determinant of social distribution of goods or the allocation of all things good, and it's just it, it's outrageous. And I uh, I think we have to debunk that. And so right. I, I sometimes go into you want choice. Well, 
Medicare for all guarantees choice of any doctor or hospital. Mm -hmm. Most plans limit those choices. You want competition? Well, competition between what over what? Right. It's silly to <laughs> right. think that right <laughs> health plans are competing with each other. They got an antitrust exemption to collude. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Let's not forget. <laughs> yeah. So, that's right. Exactly. And then, so yeah, we can create a system where you can evaluate different providers, hospitals mm -hmm. on quality, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody in, nobody out. You can actually look at how different um, hospitals operate in terms of quality. That might be worth it. And of course, innovation is all funded by the government. Right. Yeah. Basic, right, basic research, creating innovation is done by public sources, National Institutes of Health. Drug companies spend more on marketing mm -hmm. than they do on research, right? right. So I, I think, but I do believe there's a lot of uh, myths around those three words that undermine, um, you know, uh, people's belief in, in that we can have Medicare for all. But right. like the, the choice, the thing about choice though is it, it's always interesting to me because, you know, when I talk to my like colleagues or friends or people who have like an employer sponsored insurance, like people know that it's getting I think people are conscious of if you have to use it at all, they're conscious of the fact that like it's getting crappier every year and that mm -hmm. like any, any kind of meaningful choice that you might have is like you don't have choice of plan. Really? You have like three terrible right. plans of the the ERISA plan that our, our employer has like offers you, um, you know, exactly. like, so like but like I'm wondering like what this the language of choice is doing because it does somehow it has some resonance for somebody, but I can't tell what it's about. I can't tell what it's really priming in people. Well, I, I, can I can I speak on that for a second? Because someone literally yes. told me something along those lines on Saturday when they reached out uh, to ask for advice on picking an ACA plan. Um, they're oh. a chronically ill person and they said, I can't like I can't figure this out. I really need help. I just want to make sure I get one that covers at least like 60 percent of my medications. And I was talking to them and and they're not a supporter of Medicare for all. A little mind boggling, but we'll set that fact aside. And what their anxiety was is that they feel that they're told they have all these options. Right. And they don't really understand what they're looking at. And I think it's just a socially constructed position of like anxiety about something that like really doesn't exist. So you distract people with, you know, star ratings, bronze plans, metal ratings, like whatever, um, when essentially like what's actually important about the plans to the individual person who might be using it is like none of the information that you're given in this sort of compare list. And uh, there's sort of like a performative uh, selection process that everyone's like told mm -hmm. they have to go through for open enrollment. And very few people understand it because it's intentionally designed to be confusing. Exactly. You know, well, I do think all that's right, Beatrice. I think it's profoundly correct. And I think I think that is uh, a huge part of the answer that base it's marketing. Right. We're, it, everything is marketing in this. So politics, policy is marketing. And so when they advertise 30, you know, the average um, ACA health exchange has 39 choices of plans. Well, we say 39 false choices because right. none of them, right. none of them differ. Or I, I like your earlier example, Phil. It's like, yeah, you get a choice uh, from your employer, one plan you can afford and one plan you can't. Those are your choices. And when, if you look at the structure of it, the plans are going to have out-of-pocket costs that are barriers to care. They're going to have a deductible. Mm -hmm. What's a deductible? A deductible is what you pay for a product that you've already paid for. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's just right? like an absurd. Essentially, yeah, like a like a resort fee at a hotel. You know, hey, I, I rented the hotel room. Now I got to pay a resort fee. You mean I got to pay I, for and the And then cabana? the co-payments, right? <laughs> Well, it's like you have to pay to sleep in the bed that you rented in the room that you rented. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's the deductible. It's a coin-operated door lock, you know. <laughs> and those are barriers to care. And you can't. So you have a very simple principle. Guaranteed health care with no barriers to care. That's health care as a human right. If you haven't done that and eliminated the insurance companies, it's no choice at all because you're basically trying to anticipate what you're going to need. And I think your point to Beatrice about you can't actually figure out whether the plan meets your needs because what it really means is you got to know whether your providers are in the network. Right. That's what you got to know. Right. And you got to know whether your drugs are in their formulary, right? Very tough to find out up front. And you've got to know whether something you can't possibly know, whether you're going to need more care than the deductible is. Right. And whether it makes sense, <laughs> right. right? To spend more on premium or have a higher deductible. You literally cannot know that. Right. Well, some of us, some of us know that we will always go over, but it's a it's just finding one where you know you can afford the co-insurance once you go over your deductible, which has always been my problem. (laughs) Yeah. Because I I think I usually hit around like eight million a year to keep me running. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm on Rituxin. The Rituxin's like the price of Rituxin is so incredibly inflated that six hundred thousand dollars of that is just like garbage. You know what I mean? I think it's like it's always been funny to see as my care is I've been sick for eleven years now. And um, as I got sicker and as I got put on one and then two biologics, uh, it was so interesting Mm -hmm. to see like different uh, parts of the machine engage in order to like make the process more complicated. It was almost like a video game where you're like, you're getting like, you're leveling up and you've been grinding and, and the insurance company notices like, oh, your doctor's gotten really good at pushing through appeals. We're just gonna go ahead and put you, you know, bump you up to this uh, specialized managed care team recommendation where we're going to try and essentially like they tried to once uh, force me to talk to a nurse on the phone to confirm that I needed to like go to the doctor for anything other than PCP. Like, wow. And that was an Aetna Cobra plan that cost like $1,200 a month. So yeah, that's yeah. that's the choice that I had. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. It's another false choice. So, uh, but I do think it does appeal to people uh, on the marketing level. I mean, there was just this CNN article today, blog post about you know seven out of ten Americans rate their healthcare as excellent or very good. Well, the less you use your health insurance, the better it is, and mm-hmm. right. that's what. And we also we know that twenty percent of people, uh, patients in any given year account for 80% of the spending. Uh, and we Quite know chronic case. conditions. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. No, I mean, that's, yeah. and so the only way to deal with that is you have to spread the risk, right? I mean, it's not, right. Um, you have to have a big pool where uh, we can meet everybody's needs because there are lots of people who don't have really uh, big needs. And what was, um, I think, hard to convince those folks sometimes mm-hmm. is that they really are going to pay less because they know that there's, they don't have peace of mind. They're worried that costs are going up and that they're going to get, you know, they're not going to be able to afford to go to the doctor that they like or, or know. Mm-hmm. And so they have these fears, but they're not convinced that anyone's really saying, okay, here's how your costs are going to go down. Here's how you're going to be you know, taken care of. Right. Right. And there's a lot of fear 
that because people are so desperate to just to have anything in this system, in this mm-hmm. industry, that God, if you lose that, what am I going to have? Right. And we got to overcome that. Um, and it helps a lot. And this is where I do think Senator Sanders in particular plays a galvanizing role because as a champion, as someone with great authenticity, um, he uh, enjoys the public trust on healthcare, mm-hmm. even if perhaps people don't agree with him. So that does make a huge difference. If we have a trusted kind of organizer in chief, right, who can champion this issue, that is what it's going to take. Because we're not going to overcome, I don't think, the level of industry opposition and and entrenchment in the Capitol, in the Beltway, in D.C., without a movement and a champion, right? Right. You've got to have both. Part of me feels like, you know, the fact that they are spending so much money and this movement has so little money to throw against them is a pretty good sign that we're um, certainly... (laughs) Uh, infecting people with our, you know, vicious socialist uh, rhetoric or whatever, um, <laughs> because we want everything for free and everyone just loves that, you right. know, and if that's the best that they can come up with, I'm frankly exactly. like a little optimistic, which is not something I do characteristically as a practice. I don't do optimism. So, <laughs> um, I think you should be, though. I agree with you. You should be, because look at it in the face of all this propaganda, in the face of this, you know, half a billion in, in industry spending, still a majority of people agree with us for Medicare for mm-hmm. all. Two thirds, right. 70%, sometimes 80% of Democrats want mm-hmm. it. And it's right. because. So, okay, you got that one thing. Okay, 70% of the people say, okay, it's excellent, very good, whatever. Then you've got another poll that says 30% want a fundamentally different healthcare system, 46% want a rebuilt healthcare system. That's three quarters of people who know in their guts the system isn't working. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I agree with you. The reason people ask me, oh, God, why is why is everything, you know, why are the attacks so vicious? Why, you know, are we in this situation? The, we're in this situation because it's real, because we mm-hmm. are winning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you're right. I, no, mean, I mean, I was sort of wondering about, you know, the, I think Beatrice asked like what your least favorite uh, talking point is. And like, I'll just say that mine is the hardcore realist talking point who says something like, oh, you know, I really support <laughs> Medicare for all. And I, and I, I really think that we should do whatever it takes to make it happen. But like, but it's not, but it's just not going to happen. And I like, <laughs> Which is always just displays a lack of creativity or imagination or bad faith. But I like, really I'm feel bad for those people. Yeah. You know, I mean, but like, you know, clearly <laughs> yeah, yeah. you in, in organizing for this over the you know past 25 years probably have some pretty definite thoughts about like what it's going to take because you're a realist too. your experience gives you that realism. Mm. So like what, yeah. you know, what would you say to that, to that utterly cynical point? <laughs> Well, you know, it's really funny, Phil, is that many of the people who make those political points are economists, I've noticed. Uh, <laughs> or wannabe economists. Right, yeah, wannabe economists. Wannabe economists. No, no, but I mean, Paul Krugman in the New York Times is always right. telling us Medicare for all is not politically feasible, right? I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Our least so favorite example is Matt Iglesias, who is a powerless pundit, but, oh. you know, oh yes. loves. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Sorry, continue. Yes, same thing. Same yeah. thing. And so, look, at I think it takes a political strategy and, um, and, and a movement strategy, and I do believe a presidential champion. So when I talk about a political strategy, that means unelecting 
somebody who's a key opponent, mm-hmm. right? So if there is a committee chairman who's not in favor of Medicare for all, who holds the key to its you know, passage, you've got to, if you have a chance, right, there, there is an opportunity electorally to challenge that, mm-hmm. that chair. And, and ultimately, what, um, what happens is sometimes, like the Harris-Wolford example in 91, he, mm-hmm. he wins on the issue, it initiates a reform period. Um, LBJ's mandate in 64, obviously the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, top of the agenda, but Medicare for All was part of the civil rights upsurge, mm-hmm. the civil right. rights movement. It was, And that's where we are today. Really, the Medicare for All movement is the health wing of the broader justice movements. And it takes that. We're not going to win Medicare for All and not uh, when the Green New Deal, oh, I don't yeah. believe, or the fight for 15, right? I mean, this is all of a piece. It's everything is everything. And that's what it takes. Because you, And that's, I think, the example of um, both uh, Medicare and the Affordable Care Act, because the Affordable Care Act was in the context of the Great Recession. And right. so covering the uninsured was like a big deal. We're in a different political context now, right? Where cost has come to the fore and the underinsurance, right, of, of the middle class or middle income workers is prominent. But so I think, and then finally that presidential leadership, uh, again, if you look at, at the case of Obama and LBJ, uh, you see again that the crucial role that that played or obviously FDR. And, and I think what we also have to do in our movement uh, is that it is it is an issue that enjoys huge support in the black community. It's fundamental to Latinos, and we just haven't created the um, the diverse movement that it's going to take, I think, to win over those constituencies, um, or at least engage them so that we, we can win over the, the leaders, the congressional leaders in particular from those communities. So I, I think it's, I think it is all of that, but it has to be also sequenced, right? So there's a time to, to kind of mount those electoral challenges. This obviously is the year to do it. Uh, we've been doing the movement building work and uh, we, we have, a, I think, a clear champion in Senator Sanders. So this is a unique moment. I actually think that this is the strongest we've ever been. This is the closest we've ever been. And uh, which is why the opposition is so fierce, as we said. But mm-hmm. all these things are coming together. And it's very fragile because, you know, the, right. the, these moments don't happen. <laughs> right. I mean, really, it's been 10 years, right, since, since the last one. Right. So. I mean, I think, you know, you hear that a lot from certain groups on the left that you know, there is this like sort of profound despair and frustration with the electoral process because they feel that um, that it is just like an additional layer of incrementalism or um, sort of like bleeding into the same like Matt Iglesias, Paul Krugman, like it's never going to happen because for the past decade, like we've operated in sort of fits and starts. But I, I think one of the things that I really like in watching like you your public uh, speaking where you sort of, it's like you're a Medicare for all preacher. Um, yeah. Very inspirational. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite That's parts of right, your sermon right. is, uh, <laughs> is really talking about how, how communities who have been historically cut out of, you know, healthcare who have been never allowed to become patients, like how their rights fit into this fight 
Um, one of the things that you were talking about was sort of LGBTQ healthcare, trans healthcare, mm -hmm. as you just mentioned, like healthcare for POC, um, having to do with incarceration and the fact that so many people receive quote unquote healthcare in prison or mm -hmm. jail. Do you mind speaking on that for a minute? Because I think, you know, we have a huge, we have a pretty large trans audience who is finding it really engaging to sort of start to get to know the disability community and work together. And that's one of the things that we're sort of excited about trying to build is like, you know, the anti-disease-based organization solidarity. You know yes. what I mean? That's right. That's right. Because it is precisely those folks uh, that have been marginalized by the present system right. that are the greatest um, beneficiaries of Medicare for all. Because by, it's inherent in the industry model to marginalize communities because they are simply not profitable. Mm -hmm. And right, and they disrupt. They literally disrupt their, their private insurance model. And I have um, seen this directly where people with disabilities are simply not able to get services, equipment that they're eligible for. There's that right. waiting list of 700,000 people, right, on Medicaid uh, who, who just can't get those services. It's not, um, and, and it's simply not profitable to provide services to folks with disabilities. For, for the trans community, the principle that we would establish under Medicare for All of medically necessary care is, is revolutionary. It obviously it requires a provider, a doctor who, who understands um, right. the particular needs of trans folks. But having that now in the present system is no guarantee of anything, right? right? Uh, having that under Medicare for All guarantees you health care, guarantees you everything uh, from the hormonal treatments that you need or the gender-conforming surgery. So I, it really, to me, is once we establish this um, a caregiving system, right. then uh, I think kindness really does matter most to folks who have been marginalized. And I, and I don't... What I, I, what I came to in kind of thinking about this is how fundamental it is to the industry to marginalize segments of the patient population. Mm -hmm. right. It's not just that they're kind of oh, randomly excluded because they're not profitable. It's actually by design, they have to be excluded. They have to be outliers. And I, I think um, if there's anything that, that nurses taught me more is to accept patients, they accept their patients as they find them. Mm. And that the system mm -hmm. needs to do that, too. And again, if we embody the nurses values in the system, then we will accept every patient as we find them and treat them accordingly. I think. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually cute because I think this episode is going to come out on Christmas Day. And it's going to be a really oh, sort of cute nice uh, Christmas. Alt, alt Christmas carol. Mm. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's so great. important. And I think, you know, for uh, as a person with a disability, um, as a disabled person, rather, I don't really prefer person first language, but I know most people think that that's PC. But um, <laughs> as a disabled person, you know, it's it, it's incredibly uh, gratifying, obviously, to be mentioned in the context and and to like hear that you're uh, that you're not just like imagining that all this oppression and discrimination is happening just in your head. Um, and I think it's like an incredibly powerful organizing tool to just sort of recognize the fact that these groups have been completely cut out of ever being allowed to be patients often. Um, you know, and I think going like going further and like just to talk about Sanders's platform for a second, you know, 
they've got a very holistic approach to like dismantling some of these systemic controls like the uh, SSI income cap or, mm-hmm. you know, creating mm-hmm. the office of uh, climate resiliency for people with disabilities where you're like putting people in there to do on the ground work with people who are on the like verge of the climate fight. Um so I think it's like really fantastic to hear how uh, for you too, for, for the entire time that you've been working on this issue, not just your work with the campaign, Medicare for all, single payer, this has been always a, a holistic movement that has been mm-hmm. a spear. It has been a first step. So for you, like in, in like perfect utopia world, what would you, <laughs> what would you push for next is my, my, curi- my curiosity. You mean in terms of uh, uh, other health reforms that wouldn't be single payer? Yeah, or I mean, just what, in terms what, of- what's on your wish list beyond single payer? Oh, beyond single yeah. payer, yeah. Um, I mean, my, honestly, my wish list is, is, is the Green New Deal. I mean, I, 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 I am, um, uh, I mean, just imagine the healthcare system we're going to have just to deal with the impacts right. of the climate crisis, right? And my, of course, ultimate dream is democratic socialism, is uh, uh, communities rooted in solidarity and kindness where money is not the metric of good medicine or really anything else. Um, that uh, I think that it we take for granted, we just accept how the worries over money, the need for money drives our everyday lives and experience because in this, in this capitalist society, if you don't have money, it's very hard to survive, mm-hmm. uh, maybe impossible. Right. And so we need to, uh, we need to de-link that. We need to come to a different kind of a fundamental way, a different experience of everyday life through, through human dignity instead of uh, economic position. And that, that's my ultimate, um, I guess my ultimate hope. And we can't do that unless we have a planet to live on. And we're going to have a planet, but whether it's livable, right, um, <laughs> is 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 the is the task, right? right? If we, right, and if we don't whom? privatize it all for first, whom? right, we'll privatize it, <laughs> right, and create bubbles for the wealthy, and the rest of us are just you know, so um, yeah, we're so here I, to be I, this the skin bag juice that you know gets put into the matrix right. or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Soylent Green was my uh, generation's, uh, yeah, dystopia, right? Oh, true, very true. It's you know <laughs> that movie was ruined for me because it was ruined because before I saw it, it was already sort of so diffused into pop culture right. that like I knew right, the same. ending. Right. It's sort of like Psycho. Like I knew the ending before. Like oh, it's his mother. Like you know, it's the same <laughs> deal. So Green, exactly. But, no, that really sorry, does spoilers. Ruin. No, that was the uh, whole impact because I still remember the moment. You know, Charlton Heston's raised hand, you know, story like green is dead people. (laughs) Well, you know, spoilers, man. They, uh, it's too bad when something. On a brighter note. (laughs) Too bad when something becomes a meme. But no, I don't, I think, I think we're actually, I think that some kind of, if not utopia, something the opposite of dystopia is possible. And that is what, that's the kind of moment we're in. I mean, I know it feels bleak, but this moment we're in is actually for someone who has, you know, uh, had his whole adult life during this Reagan neoliberal period, right? Right. Uh, This is a profound moment of possible transformation and opportunity that we, uh, that I find uplifting and full of hope. And uh, so I'm really, uh, 
that's why I think everyone's got to engage, you know, uh, politically. I, I believe the Sanders campaign represents this this movement, this upsurge, this potential transformation. And however we engage, this is the moment. This right. is the moment where we can really win a fundamental transformation. No, I mean, I, I think that that's actually like a good way of uh, of thinking about like what is about to happen in the next you know, matter of weeks, which is that like, there is this opportunity, like the ideas, you know, about solidarity and about like what a different political horizon could be have never been in a way more salient. But I think that there, regardless, I think there are people out there who still feel that sort of like level of political despair. Like what can people do? You know, what do you think people can do like the next few months to like, you know, overcome that? Because this is like the moment in a way. Right. Iowa's in what, 60 days? Iowa's in 49 days or 48 days. 48, 48. Yeah, 48. Well, I can't can't see. So (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) No, no, I'm sorry. No, I I know that only because I was in Iowa and it was 50 on Sunday. So if it's Tuesday, I think it's 48. But if, no, I think that's right. I think uh, I've seen folks, I was in, I was in Iowa at a Canvas launch. Mm -hmm. And as we're about to start this launch, five students from the University of Oregon arrived after a 35-hour cross-country drive to join the canvas and to be there in Iowa during their break. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. That's what we got to do. And if you can't get to Iowa, then, you know, there are, there's social media, there's work you can do at home, there's work you can do in your streets uh, work you can do in your own primary, but I, and I, I understand the limitations of electoral politics, uh, in a fundamental way, but this campaign that Senator Sanders is waging is lifting up working people. I mean, you go around, he's having them workers tell their own stories. And that is something that we haven't seen before. I haven't seen this kind of energy, 32,000 doors knocked in Iowa. So that's where my, that's where my heart and enthusiasm is now, not because he's, you know, a savior, but because he wants to be organizer in chief. When he says he wants to run for president to represent uh, workers, he means it. And that it hasn't been said very often. And so I feel like engaging in this campaign now, it makes a difference. It's not sufficient. It's necessary. There are gonna, there's lots of other work. We've been doing movement work. We're going to continue to do movement work. But there is a window there's a window of electoral opportunity that we have to take mm-hmm. seriously. No, and I think it's also fantastic how the messaging from the campaign is really pushing to expand the understanding of what a worker is too, to include people that mm-hmm. are domestic workers or sex workers or caregivers or just disabled or unemployed, that everyone is a worker in some capacity because you are subject to being a participant in this profit-driven system. Right. And I, exactly. I think it's really Im- exactly. important to to um, maybe uh, mute Matt Iglesias and unsubscribe to the New York Times and go out and <laughs> knock on some doors. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. better for your health anyway. Yeah, go outside, get <laughs> some fresh air. Hey, those folks are out in zero degree weather. I know. I was zero cold. Degree weather. It's December. Yeah. <laughs> it might not snow in New York anymore, but I think it still snows there. No, and I um, feel like, are you actually going to go out to Iowa? Yeah, we're we're going to Dubuque. Nice. Um, right, like right before, and then we're going to be there for the caucus. I'm really yeah, right. That's Dubuque. Yeah, I had a great, great, great uh, canvas in Dubuque. Um, that's where that picture's from that was on Twitter. Oh, right. That's the one you were mentioning earlier. Nice. Um, yeah. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to get into? Yeah, no, I think it's worth mentioning because uh, there's a lot of um, 
play in the media about employer-sponsored insurance mm-hmm. and union members' um, attachment to it. And I think what we find is that the fear that we talked about earlier is particularly true with union members who have given up a lot in terms mm-hmm. of wages and other benefits in order to maintain their health benefits. And so there is an attachment and there is a, uh, a sense really kind of a solidarity, right, in how they built those those plans. But the actual experience, of course, of bargaining for healthcare is that you really, it's very, very difficult to make improvements. In fact, they very rarely happen. And you're always in a defensive posture where the boss has huge leverage mm. because he knows that you're going to have to have these health benefits. And so that enables them to get away with not paying weight raises and, and all sorts of other stuff. And so we got to take away that leverage. We got to take healthcare off the bargaining table. And we got to provide the same level of security and benefits better benefits than what um, the union plans offer now. And so I think that's, we. you can kind of control costs to some extent through these union plans, but ultimately the system costs are going up over 5% a year and the health plans are always uh, in reaction to that. No matter how good the plan is, it's either more money per hour from the employer or we have to juggle networks so that we maybe restrict access to some providers to save money uh, mm. or we have to raise co-payments right all these trade-offs right. are made and i think that that the reality is workers don't want to make those trade-offs anymore and they don't have to to get the same level and better benefits for example union plans never provide long-term care mm-hmm. home services right, right. well medicare for all does yeah. uh, union right. plans generally don't provide extensive uh, services to disabled people, primarily because we have other programs for that. Well, that's right. not going to be the case here. We're going to make sure that people get those services under the healthcare program. So and for so I think for union members, you scratch the surface. Oh, yeah, my drug isn't covered. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I had to go to this doctor who's out of network. I mean, you find that even though they like them, if they actually have to use them, uh, they get they get worse. Uh, you know, they they are perceived to be much worse uh, very quickly once they start oh, totally. getting used. So, and yeah. I think also yeah. just the to free up the power of like workers to literally be able to walk off a job and not worry about about not having healthcare or what if something happens and I get have to go to the emergency room or my kid gets sick. Like that freedom is the power they don't want you to have. And thank you. As long as long as they have that power, nothing will get better. You know what I mean? I think it's it's kind of just like the fundamental like bottom of everything right now. No, and it it seems to me like the the whole the the nature of the the way that defenders of the status quo try to set up the conflict is they try to set it up as if oh you are you know you might not like what you have now, but it's better than nothing. And nothing is what you're going to get in the, you know, like the implication. Yeah. They'll never say it because no, no, it's, they do it's, say it, it becomes too obvious a lie. No, they do I say don't know. Biden got very They say, take, we're gonna, they're going to take away your health care. They don't say take away your insurance. Right. They say we're gonna, they're going to take away your health care. Right. They do say it. Yeah. And it's, it's said in this way where it's like they're, it's almost like to me, some, some Democrats are they have like dipped into their anti-ACA repeal like file. <laughs> right, right. They're like, uh, look for anti-ACA repeal exactly. talking point. Exactly. Um, because that's what they're, that's what they're using. Yeah. They're trying to frame this as like the same sort of, because they want a prime loss aversion. Right. Yeah. Right. They yeah. want people to think they're going to have to give something up. 
That's exactly yeah. right. And liberal pundits, liberal pundits are the worst on loss aversion. Oh, I think it's a great idea, but the hoi polloi won't go for it. You know, I mean, it's really, it's really something. I, I love all these people who are very well taken care of. You know, the wealthy don't really pay anything out of pocket for healthcare because the value of the subsidies that are provided to their employer plans that is a net. It's a net uh, positive for them. It's quite right. something. The U.S. Amherst research showed that. So, uh, you know, people who who are well cared for, lecturing the rest of us on what we cannot cannot have, uh, is is outrageous. And it really is just what you said, Phil. It's just political expediency elevated as policy. And <laughs> I don't. I think it's um, disastrous as both. Yeah, no, and I I think it's like that's um, the most frustrating thing is that like all of these people laundering these opinions who have their needs met, um, who have cushy jobs, who um, you know, uh, in often cases are the founders of the you know, like in the Vox case, Matt Iglesias, like it's his company, it's his project, and his right. project like just is to perpetuate yeah. oppression. Yeah, and that and that oppression is exactly right. What what uh, makes people feel they don't deserve it, or they can't have it, right? Uh, or they can't win it if they organize. Um, it's absolutely a, a strategic demoralization, right? And I mean, um, so how, like, how can people get involved? How can people help you out? Um, <laughs> well, there is. I mean, there are never. I, I do think you know. I'm very partial to the. Um, Sanders campaign, obviously. I think the most important thing, uh, supporters. Us too. Yeah, right, right. Yes. Uh, yeah, but I really do. We'll just believe- mask off at this point. Yeah. I mean, if it wasn't <laughs> obvious to any of our listeners. I know. I just, you know, it's like you never know who's going to come in at the beginning of the episode. And sometimes you want to make sure that you're not just like obviously always linking an idea to like an identity every single time, you know? Because it's, it's, like- it's about something far broader. Yes. Right. Yes. And it's about something much bigger than Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is like a sign and a, a symbol, right? And an actual person doing work and an and an organization right but it's like i like the idea michael that you were framing it is like well you know this healthcare fight is part of the fight to save like the entire planet this yeah. is part of the green new deal this is part of like a collective shift and a seizing back of power to the workers to all workers regardless of whether you're actually working or not by the traditional capitalist standards. You know? Absolutely. Right. That's that's it. And it, and it isn't um, siloed. And you're right. It isn't uh, one person. It is. But it is. We have to we do have to take advantage of this moment, though, uh, for support right. of Medicare for all. This is the most important thing. It is. A, it's a leading edge issue on the kind of alternative ethos and trans and, and political revolution, social transformation that we're looking for. And um it is the area that uh, public policy that most intimately affects us personally. And, mm-hmm. and so it has profound power and we, we, we need to recognize that and respect it. And I, and so how can people, people can help themselves by engaging in this campaign. There's also plenty of other organizations, uh, you know, Democratic Social of America, I mentioned, I'm partial to uh, the nurses lead the um, uh, fight for M4A campaign, you know, the fight for Medicare for all campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe, and I would ask every listener to write a letter to the editor, to do social media postings, to push back on the industry campaign from your own personal experiences. And that mm-hmm. uh, that taps into where I think actually most people are. And I don't think they're buying, I don't think they're buying the industry BS. And But number no. one, finally, number one though, if the industry no longer had the cover 
of Democratic politicians, they would be exposed and much more vulnerable. And that is mm-hmm. really true. Right. Is that the people fronting Very for true. these guys are highly compromised and doing, uh, uh, you know, just tremendous damage and need to be called out. Yeah. No, I'd like to see Wendell Primus um, become publicly shamed in any capacity. I'm not saying and any names. Probably the rest right. of Pelosi's staff. I'm not saying any names. Right. You don't you don't have to. You're you're a surrogate now. <laughs> yeah, so you don't right. you know. <laughs> Now that you're official, just put a disclaimer to- on this episode that Michael only said nice, good things, and we were the evil ones. So we said all the bad no stuff. No one's going to believe that, but thank you. Yeah. No, it's the truth, though. It's the truth. We'll fix all of this, and we'll fix any. If you said anything that even hints at me, we'll fix it in post. Fix it in post. Yeah. No, I, that's right. No, I know. I know. I'm. But people, people uh, sometimes uh, accuse me of being happy and um, upbeat and uh, and uh, <laughs> and hopeful, and I am. I am. I, I God, you're just that. so happy. Yeah. <laughs> How are you so happy? What a criticism. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's tough times and we need. Yeah. It's this collective fight for justice. That's what keeps us happy. Right. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, why do you have such a good attitude about your crippling disability, Beatrice? And it's like, well, what other choice do I fucking have? <laughs> you know, yeah. you have to laugh. And I've found that like. The hospital setting, the care setting has been the most fantastic way for me to canvas without, you know, necessarily having the ability to go door to door in the winter. Um, And I I think like, you know, if you are listening and you are also sick and maybe you can't organize, you can't go to a protest and that frustrates you, like, why don't you just start posting about it? Like, tag the podcast. We'll boost it. Like, you just need to infect one person at a time. I like to try and like talk to all the transport people at the hospital. I'm always like, are you guys unionized? How's it going? Are your benefits good? Are you being paid a fair wage? Like how many patients are you having to do an hour? And you really get people talking about, you know, their working conditions, the frustrations with usually hospital administrators who are prioritizing upgrades like robots to eliminate Mm -hmm. jobs. Meanwhile, they're not like raising the pay of the nurses. And or uh, the last time I was in the hospital, there was a a really nice woman who was an orderly who told me that they were given 14 minutes to change a room over. Oh, my God. Between patients. And that they had also built the HVAC wrong in the hospital, so it was just pumping dust into all the rooms. And it's like, you know, they don't really get extra time if a patient passes away in the room. It's still the 14 minutes. So, like, as a patient, like, if you think that, you know, fighting for your own care is the only way to save yourself, you're an idiot because you need to be fighting for the health care of the person cleaning your hospital room, too. Mm. Otherwise, it will do you no good. You know what I mean? Well, I do know what you mean. And that's nurses <laughs> taught me, you know, viruses know no uh, boundaries, right? Um, and I, you know, right. Dr. King is very instructive on this point. What affects one of us directly affects all of us indirectly. That we are tied in single garment of destiny is true. And that when kids are dying in cages at the border, that's a public health crisis. We're all traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. And the system right. is traumatized and it's not. And the psychological impact and the physiological impact lives with those kids and it lives with their families and it lives with us uh, as a society. And we have a responsibility to engage and change it as we can. And there is um, 
different ways we can do that. But it's that engagement that gives us joy. And particularly this time of year, you know, uh, we, we can reflect on these things. What are our fundamental values? And a system, a healthcare system rooted in caregiving and human kindness and solidarity and compassion is obviously the system right. that we all need. Yeah. And one worth one worth getting out in the cold for. Yeah. It's a very, this is the perfect holiday episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. We accidentally had a really appropriate Christmas episode. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel a little bit like uh, Tiny Tim in uh, Christmas Carol. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> well, I think it's important because it's, you know, we have a lot of listeners in the UK who have found us through our work talking about healthcare policy and their concern with the NHS and the looming privatization of the NHS. And I think that there's, it's really hard when you lose an electoral battle to pick yourself up and like keep fighting. And I, I really appreciate you coming to talk to us, Michael, because clearly you have lost way more than you've won over the years. And it's really nice to see that you still are upbeat and um, that you are excited and energized about this. So like, you know, it's it's good to be reminded that everything's not futile at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's hard so. to f- find like news outlets or media sources that that reinforce that versus the um, it's never going to happen. You got to get Mitch McConnell out of the Senate first. Then you have to do this and you have to do that. And like people tune out and they get depressed and they shut down and they're like, fine, which is the least bad exchange plan? <laughs> Give me that one. Well, we don't have to settle for them and we shouldn't. No. And we um, we do not need pundits or uh, anyone else telling us what's politically possible. We make what's politically possible. Absolutely. Hell yeah. That's, um, I feel like that's a pretty good place. I think we should. Yeah. Is there any final points anyone has? No, not not yeah. for me. No, you guys have exhausted print. me. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, we really thank appreciate you so it. much for coming on. No, no, it's my pleasure. No, thank we you. we, been, it's we really awesome. appreciate it. Do you have anything to plug? Donate to Bernie Sanders. Go out and uh, canvas, volunteer, uh, call people. BernieSanders.com. Volunteer, donate, participate, organize. Fantastic. I think that's pretty good. Well and, said. Uh, Phil, any any last thoughts? No, this is this is just a true joy uh, to have you come on the podcast, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Who knows? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Michael, thank you. We're so happy to have you on and um have a fabulous holiday and new year. Um and uh maybe see you in Iowa. Yes. Solidarity. Solidarity, all right. Hell take yeah. care. Thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week from the Deaf Panel. Subscribe wherever podcasts are distributed to hear a brand new interview on single-payer healthcare every day until the 11th of February. And support us at patreon.com slash deafpanelpod for patron-only episodes, and to help us make series like Medicare for All Week possible. We are entirely listener-supported and extremely lacking in quality healthcare. Goodbye for now. Until next time, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.